0: S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com and that phone number is 520-977-7904 shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address you are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The China Shop. Joining me today is a very special guest. We have the shrewd and Shakespearean Sean O'Malley, the chief editor and financial writer for the Investors Podcast Network. If you'd like to learn more about today's guests, go visit the slash newsletter, where Sean and his team post market-related content daily, not to mention the many great podcasts their networks partner with. Uh, lastly, please feel free to reach out with uh, suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. Do that via email at two bowls at com, or you can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. i have all those links in the episode description so you can peruse them at your convenience. Without any further ado, welcome to the shop, Sean. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Kyle. It's an uh, absolute pleasure and very, very nice intro. I'm, I'm happy to dive into things today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Shakespearean did that fit uh, the, the writer? <laughs> like that might be a a nice complimentary one for you.
1: <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way. But uh, you know, when you work on writing a, a newsletter every day for over a year now, uh, you definitely are put, putting out a lot of writing.
0: <laughs> we'll have to dive into some more of that because I've been looking through some of the the content you guys have put through there, and there's a lot of great, great just conversation starters, if nothing else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We uh, you know, try to keep people well informed. And uh, you know, there's a lot of newsletters out there that are just pop culture and news focused or, you know, not really written from the perspective of like really serious investors. And so we have this backdrop of uh, you know, having the world's largest stock investing podcast. And we wanted to go into making a newsletter that is uh, you know, serious about investing and also contextualizing things for people and helping them understand what's going on in current events. So
0: yeah, and I love that there's no, uh, none of those. If you invested a thousand dollars
1: in Apple, here's what you're stuck.
0: Yeah, like I hate those types of clicky headlines. I don't see any of that on there. <laughs> yeah, I, but, you know,
1: I hate clickbaity stuff too. And so I think maybe that influence has, has kind of trickled into the newsletter a little bit or like, you know, here are my top five stock picks of the month. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Stuff like <laughs> it that. It's kind of it's just garbage.
0: <laughs> yeah. The listicles, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, how'd you get uh, how'd you get involved with um, the investors network?
1: Yeah, you know it's an interesting story. It feels like my life did a, a this huge one hundred and eighty pivot uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it started out with I began following the investors podcast actually during uh, the COVID twenty twenty lockdowns. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's this moment where I would actually been traveling as a bit of a tangent here. I'd actually been traveling in Southeast Asia. Um, in December of 2019. Oh, really? And so I saw the early kind of COVID outbreak warnings, you know, headed, moving into January 2020. Um, and so I came back to the US and I kind of had this eerie feeling that like things, like the world was changing and I didn't understand mm-hmm. how yet. Um, and so, you know, flash forward a little bit, you know, the whole world's on pause, schools are shut down, everybody's, you know, working remotely as, as best as possible. Uh, And so I just made a really conscious effort of, okay, I'm not going to, I don't know how long these lockdowns are going to last, but I'm not going to use this time just like playing video games and, and, you know, wasting my life away or, you know, just listening to music, whatever. Like I'm really going to try to like productively learn something. So it's so funny. I I opened, you know, a Spotify app and I just searched investing podcast, you know, it's like, okay, I'm I'm familiar with investing. I studied finance, but I'm not really super into, you know, tracking the markets and picking stocks Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, And the first one that pops up is The Investor's Podcast Network. And then the the flagship show is called We Study Billionaires. Uh, And I open it up and they're talking about, you know, just tracking Warren Buffett and principles of value investing and and stuff that, you know, they're not really covering on, let's say, CNBC or like the kind of mainstream financial news, you know, to really Mm -hmm. sit down and talk about, okay what is intrinsic value Um, or, you know, what are the biggest takeaways from, you know. Berkshire shareholder meeting at Omaha, which is actually I think the first episode I listened to. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, I fell in love with the podcast, and I was listening every day, and I probably binge listened to hundreds of their episodes uh, and the, the courses, and got you know fully ensconced in the the sort of ecosystem of of you know not just the investors podcast, but also um, stock investing again generally. And so uh, yeah, you know, flash forward, I I'm, at this point I'm working at S and P global um, as basically, you know, wow. working in data on their financial markets platform, very mainstream finance job. I'm passing, you know, I'm working the CFA and I passed level one. And so I'm doing all the like classic finance stuff, you know, working for a big company, mm-hmm. get, getting my certifications. Um, and, you know, I'm still listening to the podcast on the weekends. And I'm, you know, just realizing that my passion is is for, you know, stock investing and podcasting, and sort of educating people about investing in finance, as opposed to you know working in the trenches of the financial system and working with um, investment bankers and stuff like that, and and you know helping the rich get richer, so to speak, right. it was not really my passion and and what I necessarily wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I saw this um, or I heard this ad on one of uh, on one of our one of our now that I say, now that I work yeah, with yeah. But one of the <laughs> investors' podcast uh, shows, I heard this ad for a YouTube host. Uh, and it's so funny. I was like, okay, I know nothing about YouTube I don't think, I don't know if I, I don't think I have the face for YouTube. I don't think I have the personality for YouTube. I don't, you know, I mean, part of my, maybe let's say finance ego is like YouTube. Like, Oh my God, no, like I'm a serious investor. Like I can't be doing stuff on YouTube, but I also realized like, Hey, this is so cool. This would be my dream company to work for. If this is what gets me in the door, of course I w- I'll do, you know, YouTube content. Sure. And so, you know, I send out this, this application and Basically, you know, part of the one of the questions was, you know, what would be your, your plan to grow our YouTube channel to producing a million dollars in revenue a year? I had no idea. I, I looked back at what I wrote the other day and it was just total nonsense <laughs> and gibberish. But, um, you know, our company's founder, uh, his name's Stig Broderson. And so he actually I think he saw my application and I think what stood out to him was I listed all of these books that I read. And he, mm-hmm. he's an avid reader. Uh, and he's formerly a professor. And, and you know, he's a co host of our main show, we study billionaires, and, and all that good stuff. And so he appreciates a good reader. And I think you know, he was willing to meet with me because I'd read all these books and, you know, kind of funny enough, the reason the books that I had read appealed to him because they were all the books that he and his co-hosts had recommended from the last two years of the podcast. So basically, every time they recommended a book, I would just sit down and read it. And then I had this huge library of books I've read. And I was basically like, yeah, you know, I read The Price of Tomorrow and Black Swan and, you know, all these, you know, kind of interesting Mm -hmm. books. And, um, He's like, okay, I'll give you a meeting. And so, you know, funny enough, we do the meeting and I actually bombed it. I made a terrible first <laughs> first impression. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I was doing the classic like interviewing like I was interviewing for a job on Wall Street. Like wearing a suit, just being super artificial, you know. and. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he was basically like, I think 19 minutes into the interview, he just kind of looks at me and he goes like, Hey, I have no idea who you are right now. Like this is, I I, I thought you were going to be this really genuine and interesting guy and you're coming off and like, this is all plastic and fake. Like, who, who are you really? And so we actually ended up having more of like a heart to heart conversation after that. And he, and he sort of gave me this second chance. And you know, admittedly, I was starstruck because I'd been listening to this guy on his podcast every week for two years. Right. And all of a sudden I'm meeting him in person and I've been so practiced in like traditional job interviews. And so I, I totally botched it to kick off. But he gave me a second chance. We had a heart to heart. And he basically goes, he's like, you know, look, I don't think you're the right hire right now. I don't you don't have any background in YouTube. Or anything mm-hmm. like that, but uh, I like you, and I want to to keep in touch. And so I thought that was just kind of a really nice way of of him telling me no. And I was like, okay, you know what? At least I redeemed myself a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I've probably wasted away this this opportunity. And then you know, <laughs> that sounds to me like you didn't bomb it. I mean, he wouldn't have given
0: you the second opportunity if there wasn't something in there that he
1: yeah. Like. I, I think maybe it was the reading list. I think that falling back on that yeah. is really maybe what what saved me. And so, yeah, then a couple couple months after that, he reaches out to me and he goes, you know, would you be willing to write like a stock investing guide? Just, you know, put together a long article, 15, 20 pages. We'll pay you, you know, a couple hundred bucks, whatever it was. And just kind of a freelance thing. Just really, at, you know, looking back, it was obviously just a test of my skills yeah. and, and capabilities. Yep. But I thought it was the biggest honor of the world. I was like, yeah, I'm going to write this article. Um, <laughs> and I think I poured... My soul into it, and like dozens and dozens of hours of research and writing and editing, and so I put together this this final uh, write up. And you know, I, I I think he obviously was was reasonably impressed enough to to hire me. And he goes, you know, look, we're we're looking to start a newsletter. We have this email base that we've been accruing over the years from the podcast, but we're not really doing anything with it. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to have you help with it. So that's where I, I got brought on was to to basically kickstart our, our newsletter. Man, that's.
0: Like what's it like when you actually do land your dream job? Like, is there like a lot of pressure that there, comes with it? There is, a, it? Like, there is a lot of just...
1: pressure. There is a lot of pressure because uh, you know every day. You know, I'm not going to pretend like every day is is some amazing day where I wake up and I go, "Oh my god, I'm working my dream job." I mean, you know, sometimes I take a deep breath and you look around and you realize, like, okay, this is really cool to be doing what I'm doing. But there are also these moments where you know you're really stressed, you're really overwhelmed, you're really frustrated, and stuff like that. Um, And so when you set these crazy high expectations for yourself of like, I'm working my dream job, Mm -hmm. why is this, why is my, you know, why am I not the happiest I've ever been? Or why are things not, you know, perfect in every other aspect of my life? Uh, So, you know, I think there's been an adjustment period to that of where, you know, not to say that it hasn't lived up to my expectations, but it's still a job is a job, right? And it's a lot of work. And even your dream job is still going to be difficult and challenging and push you in new directions. and and beat you down at times. And, you know, honestly, if it didn't do that, then it would be a terrible dream job because you're not, uh, you're not improving.
0: Exactly. Like the, a good job, those, you have those moments, I think, where they, you are challenged and tested, but it's the the feeling after you've passed those challenges. Like if you get that sense of accomplishment and you look back on it and think like, ah, yeah, that was trying, but guess what? I, I knocked it out of the park. Like though that feeling I think is one of the best feelings in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to to work on a number of of projects with the Investor's Podcast Network at this point. And so, you know, some have gone well and some haven't, but, you know, one of our mottos is really kind of this idea of continuous learning. Um, and, you know, it, mm-hmm. it sounds very cliche, but I, I think it is sort of a profound insight. To, you know, every, of course, everyone's familiar with compounding investing, but, you know, this idea of compounding your learning and, you know, 30 minutes of deep learning or an hour of deep learning a day where you're you're just sitting down and you're reading a great book written by a legendary investor or philosopher you know somebody just really insightful and you're sitting down and really absorbing some amount of knowledge Uh, i think doing that kind of thing you know really compounds over time and then you know the other way to compound your learning is obviously you know learning from failure Mm So, you know, like I said, we've done a number of things that have not worked out well at all. Um, and it's never, you know, oh, this is a waste of money. This is a waste of time. Um, you know, sort of starting at the top with our, our co-founders, you know, their outlook is basically, you know, OK, it's OK to fail. But uh, what's not OK is to fail and not learn anything from it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, whenever things don't work out, it's it's always a question of, OK, what can we do different next time? Or, you know, what did we do wrong? Uh, instead of just letting a failure happen and and not using it as a moment for some sort of improvement, uh, yeah, and we've been big on that, uh, especially with
0: our like what we've been learning as trying to learn how to be good traders. Like, you have a bad day, well, you didn't fail unless you didn't take the lessons from it. Like that's that's our outlook here.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I mean, honestly, where I first heard that from was I think Ray Dalio's book mm-hmm. Principles, um, and yeah, you know, and obviously he's got a track record that that speaks for itself, but you know, he's, he's no, um, you know, he, he's really one of the biggest advocates for this idea. I think he has a quote. What is it? Um, pain plus reflection equals improvement something like that. And that, that perfectly captures it. Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, he mentioned, uh, <laughs> a, a massive reading list that you went through and, uh, with the, uh, when you started diving into, we study billionaires, like what are some of the favorite books that you, you did pick up?
1: Oh man, there's so many. <laughs> Give me your
0: top five in list form. No, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> I'm looking around. I've got a bunch of them around me. Um, Influence by Robert Cialdini. That's a great book for understanding. Um, it, it's one of those that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger recommend and sell every year at their, uh, their shareholder meeting in Omaha. Hmm. I would say that's such a great one for understanding you know, psychological biases that affect you. And also kind of seeing, almost learning to see the world through the eyes of a salesman Mm -hmm. and realizing the many small ways that people are trying to subtly exploit you. Oh, that sounds like a fascinating book. Robert Gallio, you said? Uh, Robert Cialdini. uh, And the book's called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. Uh, It's a great one. Um, I've got it on my desk right now, over 5 million copies sold. Um, (laughs) oh, and actually there's a quote on the cover from Charlie Munger. This is the book that I give most often as a present and is my top recommendation. So that's, that's big praise from Charlie Munger. Yeah,
0: I'll be picking that one. I can't believe I haven't run across that one.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great one. One of my
0: personal favorites has been, uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's not necessarily a market related book, but I thought it was just a fascinating look at understanding like the power of uh, the quick decisions. Like if you can actually learn to like really understand how those decisions are made and uh, like the, and the idea of like less is more when it comes to analysis, like find the three big things that really matter and forget about the 50 other little ones that don't mean anything.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, honestly, from my, from, you know, my take on what I've seen in the financial world thus far, the people who do the best are the most Mm well-rounded individuals. It's not the person who sits and studies charts and only finance all day, every single day, right? It's these people that have sort of interdisciplinary skill sets that they bring into investing and trading and finance. Um, And, you know, so I I feel that these sometimes non-market related books like Influence, Mm -hmm. which actually about, you know, human psychology or, you know, history, stuff like that are actually some of, you know, some of the most insightful, Um, you know, and I know for our company, um, I think it's is it. Oh, I have to look it up. Is it Happiness by Tony Shay? It's Delivering Happiness by Tony Shay. Yeah, and that's another great book I'd recommend to people. And it's not a markets related book uh, at all, but it's really you know he started uh, he started Zappos, and you know it's his story of how he built that company and what it was like to you know basically watch it grow and then become this this foreign thing where you know he hired hundreds of employees. And he went from having this small culture of, you know, he knew everyone in the office to one day he walked out of his office and he didn't recognize any of the people around him and know their names. And so, you know, basically his learning lesson was, okay, how can uh, I build a company that's optimized for happiness and not necessarily optimized for profits and growth? So that's another book that's really kind of shaped uh, how our company, The Investors Podcast has uh, been built and, and set up you know we could have grown a lot quicker I, we have around 30 employees right now we could easily have 50 or 100 if we wanted to take on debt and invest a ton of money and hire a bunch of people um but you know we, we've really focused on this idea of optimizing for happiness and and thinking about what it means at every level of the company and, and for all the different sort of people involved with it and the people that we the lies we touch let's say by the people mm-hmm. who are listening to the podcast or reading the newsletter all the way up to our, our CEO um, and our different podcast hosts of, you know, what does it mean on a day-to-day basis to to optimize for happiness? So those would be my two book recommendations, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea and then Influence by Robert Cialdini. Okay, I'll make sure we put those in the uh, episode description because I'll probably be picking up a copy as soon as we
0: hang up this call. <laughs> uh, I, I also love what you said too about the, the, the not growing too quickly, because I think that's a... Uh, it's something that happens a lot in the corporate world. I think it happened a lot with Nucor when I was working with them about 10 years ago. They just expanded way too quickly and didn't have the talent base internally in order to be able to uh, fill those roles and maintain their culture. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's a real danger to growing too quickly where you lose that thing that made you successful.
1: Yeah. It's a very counterintuitive problem, mm-hmm. you know, because if you went to, You know, a bunch of MBAs in business school and said, you know, what is the goal of a business? Okay, it's to grow. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's grow at, you know, all whatever is possible to grow as much as possible and maximize for profits. Um, But like you said, you you can really risk diluting your culture and, you know, some of the other intangibles that make your business work uh, if you have undisciplined growth. Right. So, you know, a lot of great companies have been very disciplined about how they've grown from Amazon to Netflix. Not that anyone should aspire to recreate what they've recreated because, you know, the odds of doing that are, you know, basically impossible. But it doesn't mean that the takeaways can't be applicable to, you know, your small business with three employees or our company with, you know, around 30 employees. Uh, and, And that idea of really disciplined growth of, you know, how can we scale Responsibly, how can we find people who are, for example, great people managers to manage other people, and not just appoint somebody to manage people? Um, you, you know what right. I mean? Like yeah. you, you see that a lot at companies that grow really quickly, and it's like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to hire this person for this role, and then they're going to have two people that report to them, with no consideration for, okay, how is that team actually going to work? How you know are the values of this company going to translate through the work that they do on a daily basis, and what sort of ultimate aim are they working to achieve? beyond just, you know, growth for the sake of growth, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think, it's, I think it's all too common, but it's something we try to be really mindful of. It's almost like the
0: movie Big is like a perfect example of that, right? Like it's the yeah. same thing. Like you yeah. take a kid and put him in a 30-year-old's body. He doesn't have any of the experience that comes with, you know, the 30 years that would be in between that he skipped. Like a company goes from a small cap to a large cap overnight. Like they are missing a lot of experience that, that comes along with that journey.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I mean, we're talking now, right, basically, when I think WeWork just did a, you know, a a 40 to one reverse share split or whatever it was, (laughs) because the company has destroyed, you know, $47 billion of market value in the last how many ever years it's been. Um, That's a great, that's a great example. Uh, and, And it's so counter to Really, I mean, this would be like blasphemous stuff to say in the Silicon Valley sort of ecosystem where it is really just growth for the sake of growth. Soak up as as much market share as possible. Um, And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're losing money, you know, investors are going to subsidize that. Well, you know, that model doesn't work when there's actually a real sort of economic cost of capital that imposes constraints on your funding and you can't just burn cash forever and, and, and grow in this, you know, really undisciplined manner. Yep, yep. Um, I
0: want to pivot real quick. Uh, I listened to you on Andrew Stoltz talking about uh, your worst investment ever, and I was curious uh, what some of the lessons that you learned from that. I think it was a Russian ETF that you you invested in, um, right before the Ukraine war.
1: Yeah, yeah. Talk about an talk about an eye opening experience. I, I will qualify and say maybe not right before the Ukraine yes, war because yes, yeah, that yes. was a, a particularly perilous time to have made that investment. But um, yeah. I mean, the original thesis was like in twenty twenty. It was a good thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually I think I made the investment right when oil price oil futures went negative and there, you know, for like two seconds oil prices were negative and it was big news story. Uh you know, I was so super naive about investing and I sure still am now, but I I've definitely learned a little bit since. But at the time I, you know, had this sort of I guess, you know, correct insight of, okay, this is obviously not sustainable, right. I don't really know why energy prices are negative, I could, you know, come up with some reason because of the pandemic, and, you know, crush to demand and all that stuff. But you know, whatever it is, it's really irrational for, you know, energy prices to be negative, that's not sustainable.
0: It's uh, it was such a weird thing. I think it had to do with the fact there's no storage, right? Because those futures contracts, yes. you have to take the oil delivery. And yeah, nobody had a place to put it. <laughs>
1: That's right. Yeah, Yeah, there was a storage glut. But yeah, you know, whatever, I digress. Um, and, And really, the point was that, you know, I had this insight of, okay, this is probably a good time. There's a lot of fear in the market. There's blood in the streets. People are are really worried about, you know, the economy and it's manifesting in in oil prices. So I'm how can I bet on oil? And I, I made some obvious bets, like, you know, betting on like marathon stock mm-hmm. or you know, companies in the US that are are more directly going to benefit from, let's say, a rise in energy prices in the next couple of years as the economy reopens right. and stuff. So there's sort of this multi-year horizon investment of like, okay, this is probably the bottom. Uh, and how can I position myself to, you know, benefit from rising oil prices over the next two or three years. Um, And then, you know, the other way I I thought about it was I was looking at, you know, these Russian oil and gas stocks and they're paying, you know, 7% dividend yields. They're trading at like a price to earnings ratio of 8.5, you know, unbelievably cheap. Um, (laughs) And, you know, as a a naive young man, you know, kind of new to the world of finance and investing, Th- this idea of geopolitical risk was so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't understand it. But, you know, why would you pay a premium for an oil and gas company in the U.S. that's two or three times, you know, the PE ratio that you would pay for the same, you know, b- the same amount of earnings, let's say, in Russia? Yeah. And I could kind of understand it, like, okay, yeah, there's some risk in Russia, but you know, I, I grew up in you know a relatively stable time in world history, yeah. right? Um, and so, you know, this idea of like, okay, well, Russia is not going to invade uh, another country. Russia is not going to invade Ukraine, which obviously if I'd just been a better student of history, I could have seen uh, <laughs> right. what happened in Crimea in 2014 in and then probably many times before that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, Yeah, maybe the world we grew up in or I grew up in wasn't as stable as I I thought it was, but I certainly didn't have an appreciation for what it meant to have geopolitical risk and even what it meant to invest in different countries. You know, it's probably a very American centric bias to just think that the world works um, in the same way that things work in North America and probably Western Europe. And, and that's just not the, the no. reality. So, um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I bought, I bought this Russian ETF, I think it was ticker E-R-U-S. Uh, and I bought that in 2020 as sort of a portfolio of different things that I was betting on mm-hmm. to, to benefit from, you know, an eventual recovery from COVID and a, and a rise in, in energy prices over the next couple of years. Um. And so, you know, as we're heading into, uh, you know, right before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, you know, now I'm like a year and a half into the investment or something like that. And I, I'm just thinking, okay, there's no way, like this is, this is one of those moments where, you know, I, in the same way that I started this investment thesis, when people were panicking about oil prices, mm-hmm. this is another opportunity. People are kind of falsely panicking about something that's ever going to happen. Uh, and I just totally dismissed the, the possibility of a ground war in Europe, yeah. um, and, you know, of course, the invasion happened, the same, you know, and the the money I lost is by no means the worst consequence of, you know, the terrible stuff that's been going on there. But, uh, you know, it did have a very, very good, uh, you know, learning right. lesson moment yes. for me where I saw my, basically the value of my investment go to zero almost overnight because of these sanctions that were imposed on Um, you know, basically Americans can't own financial assets in Russia. So it actually became illegal to own Russian stocks. Oh, that's right. So, you know, the the picks that I had made in theory were, you know, maybe good bets, right? You know, they had low PE ratios, they're churning off, you know, huge free cash flows, energy prices had, you know, doubled or tripled since I made the original investment. But, uh, you know, despite being maybe directionally correct, um this basically technical nuance of the san- the US sanctions that went on to Russia after the invasion right. um made the investment, you know, go to zero. And it's one thing, you know, to be like, okay, you're wrong and you know, we lost 20%. It's like, no, this went from you know a hundred to zero basically immediately. Um I think a couple months ago I I got the last, you know, there was some cash and you know uh-huh. some of the stuff that they could salvage that was remaining in the ETF they basically distributed out to everybody so um i think i got like 1 cent per share oh, back oh, ouch <laughs> so like, <laughs> oh. like I think there are a few times when people truly get zeroed out on an investment, unless you're doing something with options. Yeah. I mean, you know, for the most part, like stocks don't, you know, ninety maybe a ninety percent drawdown, sure, maybe. But you don't get a ninety-nine point nine nine percent drawdown all that often. Um, but yeah, I, I live that. Especially in an ETF. Right. Especially in an ETF where you're told that, you know, you're taking I, I thought it was so savvy, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm taking this diversification, you know, I'm not, you know, making idiosyncratic bets. Uh, I'm just going to basically try to benefit from the whole sector in this region of the world. Uh, And, you know, I just thought thought it was such a savvy thing to do. And I I totally underestimated what I didn't know, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, is a a great lesson applicable to to anyone in financial markets, you know, never overstate your, uh, your understanding, especially when you're talking about things at a geopolitical level, right. um, <laughs> very, very naive, okay, very yeah. naive for me to, um, it felt like, you know, I, I had a good grasp on the risks that I was, was actually taking, you know, and, and, and I would have told you, you know, well, look at how it's returned over the last decade and, right. you know, blah, 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 stuff about stock investing long-term and the energy sector as a inflation hedge and, you know, whatever kind of nonsense I would have. Um, probably choked out. But the reality was, I was taking risks that I didn't even understand I was taking. um, And those proved to be black swan risks that that totally wiped me out. Yeah, I was playing literally Russian roulette (laughs) with with that part of my portfolio. um, And, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get lucky. So yeah. Have you ever heard of Bill Browder? No, I'm not familiar with him. Um
0: I I just ran across an episode he did with Jordan Harbinger on his podcast uh, talking about he's a big investor. He's one of the like the first people to really start investing heavily in Russia. And some of the stuff that he talked about with like how they do things over there was just mind-boggling. Yeah. Like you you yeah. sign up for like these little vouchers things that they give you and then you take those and that's how you like purchase your shares and if you're the only one who applies for shares of a uh, whatever company, then you get it. <laughs> like, there's yeah. no, it's all determined based on who wants to redeem their certificates. And most people pick, like, things like their cars or, like, the brands they recognize. So you have this weird scenario in Russia where, like, all these major cash cows are undervalued because nobody's heard of them. But then they do all these other weird shit. Like, they'll, they'll make the meetings in, like, Siberia. And then the guy who runs the company, like, shuts down all the flights into there. So nobody else can go and challenge his stock purchases
1: (laughs) oh my god i I have to check out his stuff that sounds interesting yeah it's it's
0: such a fascinating just listen and uh, yeah so there's when you say that most like companies don't work or countries don't run their markets the same way the u.s does like yeah 100 (laughs) percent
1: yeah oh yeah yeah and, and you know again you know it it comes from this sort of naive place that I think you just you have to learn those lessons but you know when you sign into your your Robinhood app or your Charles Schwab app mm-hmm. Uh, and you just see things that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. You just presume that there's a certain level of of safety to that. Yeah. Okay. It wouldn't it wouldn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange if it was this crazy risky thing to be uh, to be investing. Right. In. And it's really easy when you're just you know looking at four letter or three letter tickers or whatever it is on your uh, you know your brokerage app, and it's like okay, Apple, uh, Microsoft, and then Russian stocks, and they're all right there together. Right. Um, it's very easy to, to associate those sort of, you know, fall, give this false equivalency of, um, how safe the investments you're, you're making are, you know, just because you can trade Apple and Russian stocks, uh, and the same app does not mean that you're taking the the same financial, financial risks with those. And so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, it, ultimately, I think it was a small lesson to learn in my, in my investing journey. It sounds like it's
0: one that really stuck out though
1: yeah you know and the reason it has stuck out in particular is because uh, you know as we so often do when we 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 lose or fail um we probably overly extrapolate uh those those concerns Mm. and so you know i you know not to say that i've necessarily done that but i've gone deep much deeper into studying macroeconomics and geopolitics and trying to understand (laughs) okay what the heck is actually you know going on in the world and you know what were all a lot of these factors obvious factors at play that i totally overlooked um and, and maybe how should that reshape my investing portfolio and you know one of the areas that i've you know maybe in some people's eyes you would say i've overcorrected in, in my eyes I, I feel comfortable with the way i've i've um changed things up but you know I, i've basically removed all investments in china mm-hmm. uh, out of my portfolio and that you know that's a- yeah, it's a controversial one, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, but the reality is that um, you know that, that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a, it was a very eye-opening event for me. And like I said, it it drew my mind to geopolitical risks that were unfathomable to me before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, obviously, <laughs> without going into too much detail, you can certainly see some parallels there with with Taiwan. Yeah, um, and, and even the fact that foreign ownership of Chinese stocks is illegal, um, and that these ADRs are you know <laughs> <just> this crazy <laughs> proxy system that like should maybe not be allowed to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, but uh, you know I don't know I digress. But there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sketchiness when it comes to actually investing in Chinese companies, oh, yeah. whether from the actual technical ownership details to the kind of bigger picture. You know, will there be you know a Taiwan U.S. China? conflict and, and what would be the, the r- ramifications of that. And, you know, the most obvious one, basically, right, we set the precedent with what we did with Russia. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can imagine there would be a whole lot of financial sanctions at a minimum um, if you see any kind of sort of serious escalation with with Taiwan. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I th- That was a good learning lesson. And I was very committed to not making the same mistake uh, again with authoritarian regimes set on <laughs> restoring... <laughs> um ancient empires
0: as you can say <laughs> Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as sue pullen and i'm pleased to announce that she's back fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as sue mackie sue is a certified mortgage advisor at fairway independent mortgage and equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs she has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners whether it's purchasing refinancing or even a reverse mortgage sue will help S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Um, (laughs) That's funny because I I think the thing that scared me out of China was uh, the whole thing that happened with Jack Ma and Alibaba and the way the Chinese government completely squashed that ant ipo like seeing the yeah. government having that much influence in the day to day operations of a multi billion dollar company. It's like, you know what? I don't want any part of this.
1: Right. Yeah. They, the most powerful private market players in China don't, you know, don't hold anything to, you know, the actual people <laughs> yep. kind of pulling the strings in the, in the Communist Party. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of many dozens of reasons to, to be cautious about investing in China. But, you know, the thing that really I found most disturbing was. You know, again, I was following the very kind of consensus financial logic about you know, okay, this is how you build a globally diversified passive index fund retirement account. And I'm looking at my 401k, and I'm like, okay, I'm doing the I'm doing the 15% in an emerging market uh, index fund, mm-hmm. and then you open that index fund, and uh, it has 40% exposure to Chinese stocks. Yeah. And it's got another 15% exposure to like Taiwan. And so I, I'm sitting there and my, you know, my jaw drops to the floor. I'm like, oh my God, 55% of my emerging market investment is exposed to a China-Taiwan conflict. Uh, that is really, really disturbing. And then I'm I'm looking around and looking at my friends and my family at their 401ks. And I'm thinking, okay, you guys are all, you know, we're all in these Vanguard emerging market funds, mm-hmm. Right. know, that's like the standard, you know, you get a job at your 401k, you have a couple preset allocations, and then they're putting you into this huge geopolitical risk, another order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude bigger from sort of a financial market implications of what happened with Russia and Ukraine. Um, But you're just taking that with with China and Taiwan. So I've really now pivoted to trying to, you know, if I'm going to get that emerging market focus. picking specific countries and, and, you know, ETFs that are, you know, investing primarily in there in India ETF or Columbia ETF, uh, you know, something that as instead of this broader emerging markets exposure, where, you know, they're, uh, ultimately they're, they're market cap based. And of course, you know, a lot of the largest emerging market companies are going to be based in Taiwan and China, and they, di- they just disproportionately dominate right. those, those uh, ETFs. So you, you said that you
0: were just uh, in... Southeast Asia, like right before the, the COVID lockdown started hitting, like what countries were you visiting there? And was, was it just like a trip just to go explore? Or were you like out there, like putting boots on the ground, uh, investigating like for, for diamonds in
1: the rough kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> diamonds in the rough, uh, I wish, I wish, um, it, you know, it was actually sort of a, a school study ab- abroad program. And so okay, I, it okay. was, you know, based on, uh we went to, well, okay. So I was like, we went to Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. So I got a pretty broad tour of, of the region. And we, we met with hedge funds in Singapore. And we were meeting with the US Embassy in Vietnam and the Chamber of Commerce. And so we get to make all kinds of incredible connections. And honestly, that is what planted the seed of, of wanting to be invested in emerging markets. Because ah. I went to these countries and it's like, God, you go to Singapore and you fly back to New York and New York looks like a third world country. I mean, right. it's like it's embarrassing. <laughs> wow. I, I, I was like really, really embarrassed to come back to the US. I was like, God, our infrastructure is terrible. And, you know, the reality is like, I, because a lot of that's brand new, right? I mean, a lot of yeah. that infrastructure, those airports, those roads. I mean, a lot of that just got built in the last two decades. And that's
0: exactly what you want to see in emerging market, in my opinion, that Right, infrastructure and education.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. Yeah. We went to a technical university in Vietnam and you're meeting these incredibly smart people. And then, you know, I we sort of asked one, It was like, okay, so like, you know, you, you've got, you, you know, like five different coding languages and you know, what, how much do you expect to make when you graduate? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, like 15,000 us dollars a year. And that was like a huge salary. And it's like, okay, like there's a lot of room for growth here because people with your skill sets could, you know, easily be making 10 X that, uh, in the U S or whatever. Right. And so you just realize like, oh my gosh, there's so much potential. There's so many, you know, the demographics are so favorable the the infrastructure is being built, the pot, you know, the technical skills are being learned. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a really impressive experience. And, and, and I kind of walked away from that thinking like, I need, you know, the type of economic growth that's going to be transpiring in Southeast Asia over the next four decades mm-hmm. uh, is is going to be, it has been and will continue to be probably very remarkable. Uh, and, and so I wanted to tap into that. And then the very disturbing reality I found was that, you know, you have to take a lot of China exposure to do that. Mm hmm or at least, you know, with kind of the conventional fund, mainstream BlackRock and Vanguard emerging market funds, it's very hard to get that ex-China emerging market exposure.
0: Yeah. I'd love to have a, just Vietnam. That's one of the ones that's been on my radar, of countries to watch for the future.
1: Yeah. And if you get the chance, you should go. It is incredible. That's, uh, yeah, I'd love to go there. I,
0: the pictures, uh, I think I watched the... Um, Oh God! What was it? The Grand Tour is that the one with uh, Jeremy Clarkson mm. and Richard yeah. Hammond, the guys from uh, Top Gear? Yeah, and they went to Vietnam. It was just yeah. gorgeous. Oh.
1: It was so cool. Yeah, the food was incredible, and I mean, you know, you go there and the dollar goes a, f- a long way. um And so, yeah. besides the flight to get out there, it's uh it's very affordable place to visit mm-hmm. as as an American. But it's just such a vibrant you know, young population and, and you're looking around like at the city, uh, you know, the city landscape and there's like dozens of cranes and construction projects going on and you could just feel like, okay, like this is, something's this happening. this is what, yeah, like something, something is, is happening here. And, and how can I, how can I be a part of this and how can I benefit from it? Which is selfishly my first thought as a, as an investor, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think, oh, man, was it Harold Vanderland I think we talked to? He works for uh, HSBC and is head of like their Southeast Asia um, arm or branch or investing branch. He wrote a really interesting book on just looking at all the different countries in Southeast Asia. And Vietnam is definitely one of the ones that stuck out on my list.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I guess I'll take this moment to say, you know, basically, I've been talking about this ex-China exposure Mm -hmm. and talking about, you know, my interest in emerging markets. And so where did that kind of ultimately lead me? Uh, And I'll preface this by saying I haven't made this investment yet. So I kind of pointed out more as just a novelty and not, you know, talking about a position that I already hold. Uh Um, But there's this really interesting ETF called uh, the ticker's FRDM. And it's a Freedom, I, I think Freedom ETF. Uh, and basically they, you know, again, it sounds a little cliche cliche, and that's obviously like a marketing thing, but basically their approach is to, you know, try to invest globally in emerging market funds. And then, you know, they quote unquote freedom weight the portfolio as much as possible. So they don't invest in state owned enterprises. They don't invest in authoritarian countries. Um, and then they try Mm -hmm. to, you know, there's some objective, Third-party index—I forget what it is. I don't know if it's made by the UN or something, but it's you know based on uh, the relative r- ratings of you know freedom of speech, freedom of the press, rule of law, democracy, all that stuff. Um, and so, basically, you know, the, the long and short of it is, it's an emerging markets ETF that leans heavily into you know countries that have maybe what you'd say similar values or right. similar political economic setups as maybe what you would expect to find in the West. Um, and so, you know, some of those countries are like Poland. I think Chile has a large rating. Um, hmm. and, you know, these are countries that are very much developing rapidly, but you're not necessarily taking the same sort of. Um, you don't have that authoritarian risk, risk that you might, or, or geopolitical risk that you might be taking with, uh, let's say, an investment in China. Um, you know, these are countries that a lot of the countries I think in that portfolio are very much sort of U.S biased, maybe, you know, not not completely, but Mm -hmm. they're countries that are more aligned with sort of a US worldview and maybe world order. And, you know, not to say one way of thinking about the world is right or not, but as an American investor, which I am, um, that's probably a better bet right. than you know, especially after the precedent that's been set with these Russian sanctions, where basically it's going to be illegal to invest, let's say, in countries that are, um, you know, actively considered, let's say, enemies of of the U.S. and its and its interests. And so, you know, you can't invest in Iran, you can't invest in Russia, um, and if you build this list of countries that you think might go into this sort of naughty list or this sort of <laughs> restricted investment list. Um, you know, why not try to get ahead of that?
0: Well, you also have to worry about, uh, it's probably less risk of nationalization too, right? Or when they right. take yeah. all the assets of foreign companies and make them the state owned. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like I think Venezuela does that a lot, don't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's right. And, you know, other things like currency devaluation, yeah. inflation, yep. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, other sort of extraneous risks that you can sort of control for. By just focusing on stable countries with rule of law and freedom of the press and freedom of speech and, and stuff like that. And, you know, r- from risks of terrorism to war, I mean, you can really kind of trim a lot of that out of your portfolio. So I don't know, not to make this sound like an advertisement for that inv- you know, for right, that right. ETF, because, you know, I'm not associated okay. with them in any way. And like I said, I'm not even invested in their fund, but I just thought that was such a novel Way to maybe think about emerging markets investing, and it, and it strikes me as a, a very um, smart way to do it. And it maybe it's something I'd love to just try to recreate on my own without you know paying the management fees of their uh, their fund or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's really interesting.
0: It almost falls under ethical investing, but what you just described sounds a lot like the way ethical investing, I think, should be. I like it when the ethics and the values and the things that I look for, like, align.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And and so it's kind of, I mean, it's like the promise of ESG investing. But, you know, in reality, a lot of uh, ESG investments, you know, underperform Mm -hmm. kind of structurally. Um, Whereas, you know, this is sort of like a Warren Buffett expression, but... It's, it's actually better to do good business and be ethical than it isn't. Right. There's something, there's an intangible value to being, to building trust and honesty and having stability. And so, you know, that equates to, you know, whether it's running a business and, and sort of the, the Warren Buffett model of being this folksy, really highly trustable person, uh, with a whole lot of corporate stability. Um, or whether it's with a country where, you know, you have a lot of, there's a lot of trust in the institutions. Um, and it's, you know, a very stable sort of geopolitical environment, stable rule of law, um, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- that translates to actually higher returns on investing over time. And you can have a country that's growing, uh, you know, erratically, but that doesn't necessarily translate to, um, you know, great investment returns over time, especially if like you mentioned, that's gonna ultimately result to in a regime change and a coup and then all the company, the country's assets get nationalized, uh, you know, (laughs) you're gonna get wiped out. And you're just, you're playing Russian roulette with your your investments to an extent. And, you know, maybe on average, it's like, well, on average investing in, you know, in Russia, you get an 8% return a year. And it's like, okay, that's great. But once every 20 years, if you get zeroed out, you're just waiting to get zeroed out. Yes, right. Yeah, And, and so, I mean, you know, you got to stay in the game to keep playing the game, which is such a you know silly thing to say. But basically, I mean, what that translates to is you can't get wiped out. And, you know, you should avoid places where you can get wiped out. And, and that's really the very basic thesis of, let's say, this freedom weighted style of investing, where you're saying, you know, where are the places um, it's sort of a, a, via negativa approach. Uh, I think as Nassim Taleb would say, you know, not trying to, or as Charlie Munger would say, you know, sort of inverting the problem, not figuring out where to invest, but figuring out where right, not to invest right, right. is a great, is a great place to start.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like that. Uh, talked a lot about China and, uh, I had a bunch of other topics on here, but I don't know that we're going to be able to get to, cause I kind of want to get your thoughts on what's going on in China with the real estate, um, uh, crash and Evergrande declaring bankruptcy Country Garden not paying its bills.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a story. I mean, I've been tracking for a while, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, we've <laughs> been talk-
0: tracking Evergrande for about two years now, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I I was thinking about this the other day because, you know, I, actually before Country Garden and Evergrande kind of came back in the news the way they have been mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks, you know, let's say a few months ago, I was asking myself, I was like, okay, you know, what, what can I learn from the fact that there is this, there's all this hype about how Evergrande was going to bring down the Chinese economy, right? right? And it was going to destroy things. And then I was thinking, you know, so, okay, what, what does that mean? The fact that that hasn't happened yet? Like, obviously, there's You know, whether it's something I don't understand about the Chinese economy or whether I'm just consuming, let's say, you know, bad analysis and commentary from the sources that were telling me that this, you know, impending, you know, full scale economic blow up was coming. Um, But really, I think the lesson the lesson I had sort of the takeaway was, you know, when you have a centrally controlled economy, uh, you know, very top down in many ways, Mm -hmm. you can put things in slow motion. But that doesn't mean that they're not in motion Uh so i kind of i i kind of have maintained you know this idea that china is structurally in trouble you know at least from an economic perspective Mm -hmm. um and you know whether it's the dependency on the property sector the lack of domestic consumption demographics problem right with rapidly aging population and you know there's some rumors that they've overstated their population by hundreds of millions in the census and you know the whole um you know one child policy is not yep. necessarily a sustainable thing for you know setting the foundation of a <laughs> consumption driven economy <laughs> decades into the future um- <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of really major, let's say headwinds to the Chinese economy. But you know, again, you, you, know, you can open an op-ed in the FT and two years ago, do what I did and read about Evergrande and then go and tell your friends and say, hey, the Chinese economy is about to collapse in a month. And you'll sound like the smartest guy in the room. And then a month goes by and the Chinese economy doesn't crash. And then you say, okay, well, what the, what the heck happened? Was I wrong or what did I misunderstand? And, and so that was sort of me. Like I, I thought I understood what was happening in China better than I did. Um, and I've I've realized that it doesn't mean that there aren't these structural headwinds to, let's say, the, the Chinese economic system. But, you know, they can pull a lot of strings. Mm-hmm. to let's say, you know, take the can down the road, um, which, I mean, in many ways, it's what the US does in a crisis. But in the way that, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, where all of a sudden, you know, that you have these underlying tensions building up years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, you have to address it very quickly. Yeah. Um, I kind of get the feeling like, officials in China have been well aware of this property sector bubble and, you know, whether they've done a good job addressing that is maybe a different question, but, you know, they can kind of plan for their response over a longer time frame and drag out um, sort of the crisis in a way that you might, you know, that might happen in a much quicker time span. in let's say in the U S uh, and, you know, in many ways, it reminds me of what we saw with Japan mm-hmm. um, in the late, 80s and 90s where you have this huge debt and property bubble. And if you don't deleverage, actually, Ray Dalio just had a, uh, a piece that he wrote about this of, you know, China basically needs a, 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 what he calls a beautiful deleveraging. Otherwise, they're going to face sort of decades of deflation, uh, you know, expedited by their demographic problems that, that Japan has faced.
0: Yeah, Japan's uh, market's not really done anything since the 80s, right? It's just been kind of sideways for the last 40 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at those charts, and you're exactly right. You can draw a straight line from like 1989 right. to 2019 or 2020, and the stock market is at at like the same level. Um, <laughs> so that's that's terrible. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I'm I not going to pretend like I know exactly what is going to happen with China, but there are you know some very interesting ramifications. Like you know, you're looking at. Uh, I saw a headline earlier this week of, you know, basically state banks in China are going to be selling U.S. treasuries to, let's say, defend the yuan because they're trying to boost domestic consumption. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, if the currency devalues a whole lot, that's going to make consumption a lot harder. Um, And so, you know, now you've got banks in China, they're selling off their U.S. treasury holdings. And then, you know, how does that ripple through the U.S. treasury market at a time when, you know, the, Janet Yellen has basically said that we're going to do, I think, $1.8 trillion of net net issuance um, in the second half of 2023. So you're going to have this huge supply of, of treasuries. We've got quantitative tightening from the Federal Reserve uh-huh. and, and, and rate hikes, uh, you know, also adding pressure to the bond market. And then you've got, you know, the let's say the uh, Fitch credit downgrade. Um, <laughs> you've got all of these factors that are, are putting a huge amount of pressure on the treasury market. Um, And we've seen, you know, long bonds have been complacent for like the last year and a half or whatever, for so long during this rate hiking cycle. And now it kind of seems like they're they're starting to break. And yeah, you know, again, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on internal Chinese matters. But to me, it's really interesting as somebody who's made a point of not investing in China. It's really interesting for me to consider how that ripples through and impacts the broader financial system. And, you know, for example, what does it do to the U.S. treasury market and then Mm -hmm. what sort of pressure? Um, does that risk off, uh, you know, environment, how does that affect tech stocks and the U S stock market generally and real estate and inflation and, and sort of all that stuff? Uh, there's just so
0: many variables that it's almost impossible to predict with any sort of certainty. You can have ideas of what's likely to happen, but I mean, the, I think the thing that we learned from studying the markets is that it's all percentages and probabilities. It's more like quantum mechanics than it is hard physics.
1: (laughs) That's right, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. It's you know you just have to be honest and, and try to give maybe probabilities as much as possible to the outcomes. but yeah, I mean, really what that comes down to is acknowledging that you you don't know what you don't know um, and 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 hedging any opinion or outlook that you have uh, accordingly. So you know, I, a lot of people are really long long duration assets' their home and stocks, you know they've got seventy percent of their 401k in the stock market. Um, and you know how prepared are they for? Uh, you know we've had interest rates falling for forty years, which is a boon for for uh, financial assets. You know both real estate and the stock market. Um, you know are you prepared for maybe forty years of a secular reverse and and let's say interest rates, right? I mean, what if it's not unprecedented, but you know, if we we see basically, uh, you know, treasury rates bounce off from the bottom of 2020 and 21 and then rise for several decades, I mean, what sort of headwind does that mean for most people and and are people positioned for that? And, you know, back to your comment on the probabilities, most people have this, you know, probability weighted view of the world that's based on 40 years of falling interest rates where you're saying, you know, okay, well, the stock market averages 9% a year, and it's done that for the last four decades. So I should expect 9% a year over the next four decades. And it's like, okay, and you're uh, you know, prescribing uh, 100% certainty to that outcome, when in reality, there's this other factor that you know, is maybe a big contributor, and that is falling uh, interest rates over the last couple of decades. Um, and and you know, if you're not accounting for that, you're going to be blindsided by that. So that's not mm-hmm. me saying to, to short the stock market or to to panic or you know but it it just sort of a reminder of of these these risks and these um, way of thinking about managing risk that is that this probabilistic view you know and and considering you know okay I'm pretty all in on these like long duration assets you know stocks and real estate Um, you know maybe I should maybe I should diversify a little bit um, and and think about you know what would it mean if interest rates if the ten year if ten year yields stayed where they are or kept rising for the next fifteen years what would that mean for my portfolio and and thinking about that I, I think that's a, a thing that I would encourage a lot of people to seriously consider um, especially as you know inflation risks which seemed unprecedented and tw- you know twenty nineteen and for the decades before that really sort of rear their head I mean I wrote a paper in twenty twenty. Um, basically saying that we were moving into a you know new secular era of th- sporadic inflation, and I didn't think mm-hmm. we'd hit nine percent, but I thought over the next decade we would have you know consistent prints that were well above the sort of two percent target, and I started right. trying to to reposition my portfolio accordingly, which as we've talked about uh, included <laughs> um, some Russian stocks, <laughs> but that was not the in- yeah that was not the entire um, you right, know, right, right. plan, so. Yes. It could have been worse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Going back to that lesson that you learned there, are you happy that you actually went through that? Because I I find that a lot of people that make outsized risk bets without knowing what they don't know and then having them work out for the good tends to be worse in the long run for their
1: growth. Yeah, I think that's that's well put because Um, I mean, you saw it a lot with like the Robinhood stock trading frenzy, like 2020, 2021. You have a lot of people that, you know, oh, I just bought this and it went up 50%. And then I bought this and it went up 20%. And it's, oh, stock trading is really easy. Uh, And you have no idea. Like, it's like, yeah, you have no risk control. You're not hedging at all. You're not, you're going all in. You're doing, you know, out of money In a historic bull market, too. <laughs> yeah, you have you actually have no idea what you're doing, or or if you're like me, you're taking geopolitical risks that you didn't even realize yeah. you're taking. Oh yeah. And so I would rather have had that blown up, you know, early on in my adult life and career than to have that blow up in 20 years from now, where I'm losing, you know, maybe a huge chunk of my retirement account. You know, in the big scheme of things, th- that loss has really no impact on me because. I'm young. I'm going to, you know, most of my lifetime earnings are ahead of me and I will make that mm-hmm. money back and I will reinvest it hopefully better because of, of that lesson. Exactly. But uh, yeah, you know, and, and kind of to my point of, you know, you've had decades of, of fall, structurally falling interest rates and subdued inflation. I mean, that's been a huge boon for asset prices and you have yeah. this sort of, Uh, I think Mike Green of uh, was it Simplify Funds now. He used to work at Logica, but he talks about this a lot of like how stock market has become this public good. You know, we have so many pension Mm -hmm. funds that are tied to the S and P five hundred, where they have you know huge chunks of their investment um, in the U.S. stock market, and you have you know so many people that are just told you know oh yeah, buy the S and P five hundred, it'll return nine percent a year every year, um, and you know model out your retirement needs based on earning 9% a year in the stock market for 40 years. Um, and you know the way he talks about it is like it's just really become a public good. It's like is the stock market this um, you know tool for you know measuring risk and valuing companies or is it just a way for everybody to fund their retirement? You know they're not necessarily compatible. Right, right. So yeah, I don't know it's really interesting me for me to think about some of those those dynamics and and you know, wonder, for example, is the stock market become a public good? Or you know, I think another way to put it is: is it too big? Is it too big to fail?
0: Ah, uh, right. <laughs> At this point, if if something happened to where the stock market did fail, I think uh, I think we have much bigger problems than worrying about the stock market. <laughs>
1: Right. Right. But I mean, just think of it. I mean, I know there's so many yeah. of my friends, you know, graduated college and it's like, yeah, I'm going to put a hundred percent on my 401k in an S and P 500 index fund. And yeah. if I get 9% a year, I'm going to have $3 million by the time I'm 65 or whatever. And, and that's their whole, that's their whole financial plan. Uh, that was, that was mine 10 years ago. Right. And yeah. <laughs> and you've got, you've got millions of Americans. I mean, you go to just like the generic you know, some sort of website giving out financial advice or whatever. I mean, the generic advice is basically to do that. And I'm not even saying not to do that, but I'm just really, my point is to be aware of what you're doing and why, and and make sure you understand that risk and, and don't just invest in Russia without understanding the geopolitical implications, (laughs) or don't just only invest in the S&P 500 without understanding this kind of public good dynamic and the impact of, you know, structurally falling interest rates and subdued inflation um to get really technical (laughs) about it
0: um last thing uh, because we're kind of coming up towards the end of time here last thing i want to ask you that is uh, as somebody who writes and analyzes things in the stock market you mentioned uh when you're talking about reading about china and not knowing if you're getting bad analysis or not like how do you spot that now like how how can readers spot bad analysis
1: oh it's such a great question um man you know (laughs) (laughs) It'd be very easy to say almost all of it is bad enough. (laughs) Um, I think,
0: I mean, (laughs) I think
1: I actually just finished. um, It's funny enough. I was reading uh, skin in the game by Nassim Taleb. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know, he does not speak highly of journalists because I think he called it the the mother of all agency problems um, with (laughs) with journalists because their whole thing is right to get you to click um, on the article and read it. And, you know, not necessarily with, they're not a fiduciary, right? And th- this is not somebody right, who right. is legally obligated to, you know, present you an unbiased or factual or even contextualized um, take on, on what's happening. And so, I don't know, it's been really interesting to, to work on writing sort of financial news because I, I really have this new appreciation for like h- how maybe quote unquote fake news works. You know, mm-hmm. like it's not explicitly, it can be explicitly lying to you, but it's not necessarily that. It's often like the context you choose to leave out, you know? Right. Um, right. Yes. And so like when, when I do a write-up and we're talking about uh, Evergrande in China, there's a million things you could touch on. And, you know, by definition, you're making sort of an editorial decision of like, okay, we're going to include this and we're not going to include that. Um, but, you know, obviously you would need to account for all of those factors uh, in a really unbiased reporting. So I don't know if I have a good Answer for how to spot that. I mean, honestly, the biggest red flag to me is whenever people speak with too much confidence and too much certainty. I mean, if somebody tells you exactly what's going to happen or how it's going to happen. I mean, anytime there's like, and it's it's so frustrating because that confidence is very attractive. When I listen mm-hmm. to somebody who's so highly confident that they know what is going to happen, uh, it's very appealing. It's like, yeah, I'm I, he, I'm just going to outsource my thinking to him because he knows. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows way more than I do. A lot of people follow Michael Burry. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, and you get, you know, a lot of these charlatans that just make a a business out of, you know, telling people things with with really high conviction.
0: If it's something you want to hear, then maybe you should question it. I think that may be the one way to look at it.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. That sort of that sort of confirmation bias. So I mean, I can just say personally, I don't think of myself as a journalist. I don't tell people I'm a writer. You know, I, I think of myself as being an investor first, and then mm-hmm. I write a newsletter. And and that's our way of of trying to cover financial markets.
0: That's what I like about what I was reading that you've done. Is that it's analysis. It's not trying to predict. It's yeah. this is what's going on. This is how it's affecting things right now. Like you. Yeah it's up to you, the reader, to determine how to use that information.
1: I I mean, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I I mean, that's really been the hope, you know, of like, Mm -hmm. I I find a lot of media and news to be kind of like condescending, where it's like, you're telling you what to think. And it's like, no, no, I'm capable of thinking for myself. Like, I just, (laughs) you know, like, thank you for putting this on my radar and giving me some context. And so, I mean, we try to provide as much context as possible. But look, I mean, even we're limited, we make editorial trade-offs of like, you know, I don't know if we, there's not, there's just not enough space to like cover this topic. Or if we mention this, it's going to lead down a whole nother rabbit hole. And so, you know, we make the same editorial trade-offs, but I'd like to think that we do it from a lens of we're investors and we're not journalists. And we're, you know, I, I'm trying to communicate what I would want to know from every story to, you know, people who uh, are reading the news, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. not necessarily, you know, just kind of like shoving our opinions um, down your throat. So, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a really important question, but that agency problem is going to exist everywhere in media. And, you know, really, okay, I'm going to get on a slight tangent here. but (laughs) (laughs) um, I think in this whole age of ChatGBT and AI, it's so important, you know, more important than ever to um, have personal brands that you follow and trust because there's going to be so much artificially generated content out there, like, you know, how do you, as a newsletter, it's something we ask ourselves all the time, like, how do we, you know, draw that distinction? You know, I mean, if you're gonna look at a list of what jobs were first to be replaced by ChatGBT, I think mm-hmm. a newsletter editor and copywriter would be like the first one. Yep. And so to my point, like, we've really thought a lot about, like, okay, well, we have to be intentional and, and build a personal relationship with our audience. Um, and you know, the more sort of individual trust that you can build, I I think that goes, that goes a long way. Um, so we, you know, we try to sign off different parts of the article the newsletter with who wrote what and try every now and then we provide personal snippets and stuff like that. And you can read our bios on the website and you know, all that good stuff, but we're really trying to build some context of how and why we see the world the way we do and who we actually are as people, as opposed to just being some generic publication that could have been written by ChatGBT, as far as you know. Yep. So, yeah, I don't know. I think in in the coming years, I think those personal relationships and and feeling like you have that trust with, let's say, the actual person producing the content that you're creating is going to be really important. I mean, and that would be one way to say why podcasts have done it so great, right? 100% why, yeah. uh, the, a
0: hundred percent why the majority of people tune to podcasts to get their news now. And they do it because of that personal connection. They don't get yeah. that. You don't get that from a news anchor on CNN. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that anchor can, you know, and, and to me it's not even about CNN or Fox or whoever it is. Yeah. It's literally just that Any you know, it's them, brand yeah. and like that anchor is going to get subbed out with somebody else. And, you know, in an hour, yeah. a new anchor will be on and it's like you're, you're trusting the brand
0: the whole school of yeah. journalism is to be impassionate and just present the facts, but people right. want that connection. They want to, they want to know the person that's talking to them, you know?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that, I think that's a huge value add and really I would say, you know, unless it's a, a source that you've really come to trust over the years, you should probably be skeptical. But, yeah. you know, I have a list of, of people that I, I follow very closely and I say, I say people, you know, specifically not necessarily publications, because, um, you know, th- these are individuals who I feel like I've learned to, to understand and trust. Um, and, you know, I, I like hearing their opinions on things. And that's sort of how I, I hedge this agency problem in in journalism. You know, of course, I read a lot of articles mm-hmm. by a lot of different journalists. But, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you kind of take it with a grain of salt. And then there are, of course, you know, opinions that I trust more and I, I add more weight to those.
0: Yeah. Uh, Sean, this has been... One heck of a conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Uh, We kind of went... On many different tangents there, but I thought it was all applicable and uh, better than the questions that I had drummed up beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it when that happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to do that. I, I tend to, uh, as a as a warning to any other podcasts that I go on, I, I tend to, to jump around a lot.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think uh, I think the investors' podcast should be giving you your own. I, I think you did. <laughs> I very well, it. and the ones I listened to you on, I, yeah, personable. Well, you got the personality for it for sure. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, unfortunately, that does mean that we've come to the end of our time with Sean. And while we are sad to have to say goodbye, we are comforted by the fact that there is so much content at the investorspodcast.com dot com from Sean and his team to comfort us on those lonely nights. We reminisce about today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode or now wondering what to do with the rest of your life, go check out our guest directory. You can see all the other amazing traders, financial writers, publicators, podcasters that we've had the pleasure of speaking with over the years. All those links will be in the episode description. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. But until then, share this with your friends so we can become billionaires and Sean can study us. (laughs) Well said.